Welcome to Corizant Technologies, home of the Digital Executive Podcast. Welcome to the Digital Executive. Today's guest is Iran Shlomo. Iran Shlomo has held key positions in Intel's processor division in the 13 recent years and has global expertise in computing and information processing architecture and was responsible, among other things, for the development and implementation of machine learning technologies in every Intel lab in the world. In addition, in recent years, Iran was the technical leader of the cooperation program with Intel Israeli Startups, or IPP, and was part of its founders. Iran also has a rich entrepreneurial experience, and Data Loop is his third startup. Iran holds a BSc degree in computer engineering from the Faculty of Engineering at the Technion. Well, good afternoon, Iran. Welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me, Brian. Awesome. This is exciting. I got up early. You stay up late in our different time zones. You're from Tel Aviv, and I'm here in Kansas City, so I appreciate you jumping on. So, Iran, you've got quite the career in technology as a developer, a chief technology officer, and now you're the CEO for Data Loop. Could you share with our audience the secret to your career growth and what inspires you? I would say uh, always being attracted to, I think it's Dilbert that was saying that if you want to achieve real excellence, it's always easier in the intersections of things. And my career, it's been always about the intersection of business and technology. It's kind of maybe sounds trivial, but for example, at the days of the Intel, where I was both manager and a technical leader, that brings some uh, quite some challenges because people used to put people in boxes, right? And if you go to developers and you're a manager, then immediately you're labeled as a manager or someone who is have uh, very little understanding of, uh, I would say, the underlying technologies and mechanics. And on the other hand, when you go to the executive meetings, you're not allowed to talk about the technical stuff because this is a management meeting. People always had hard time, even if you take a look on the career path that it's being defined as either managerial or technological, never felt comfortable with that because I enjoy them both. And, and I think uh, that the, the magic happens in the combination or the fusion of them. I think at some point at my career, at the beginning, I felt guilty, right? Why I, I probably should choose. And then I kind of looked around and I said, okay, Green and Page, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, those people are doing both. And we can all agree they're quite successful. So probably I'm not that wrong. And I kept my, uh, I would say, my dual position, if you'd like, as both running things in a more broad organizational levels while not being ashamed to code and go all the way to the uh, gory details of the technical side. I think it's pretty amazing. I think it serves me well. But it comes with a lot of pain, both of the surrounding, because people are not are not comfortable with not putting you on the right box, but also on, the, I would say, the business or the ramp-up dynamics. Uh, and for me, it works well, right? The ability to jump from Excel to finance, to code, to business plans and, and marketing. Uh, it's just in a, putting me in the right mood, and I'm enjoying both. So that's kind of how it works for me, and so far it's been working great. Awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. And you and I, uh, Iran, have very similar backgrounds of you know being in the gory technical details as a developer like I was and then moving into management. And you're right, the magic happens in the middle there. And I, and I love your analogy on that. So thank you. And Iran, as you know, everybody globally has had to make major shifts to adapt to this new normal in this pandemic. Could you share with us what you're doing to help your organization stay relevant in this economy? Yes, I've learned so many things. That starts with even with the basics. If you go to my four years old and you ask her, she was coming to me by herself and saying, you know, COVID 
it's somewhere in the middle. It's not bad and it's not good. And I said, please explain. And she said, you know, on one hand, we don't get to see the friends. We don't get to get to the kindergarten. But on the other hand, we get so much family time. We get so much together time. Then I'm not sure how to name. And she's four, right? And I'm sure it's, if it's good or bad. And I think if you take that simple lesson... It's, I think that we've learned it across the boards. We all learned that many of the aspects of things we're doing, we found that I wouldn't call it good or bad. I would call it we found that the balance point that was we kind of naturally, uh, I would say, leaning towards before COVID, we found today that this balance point can be different. And let's start with one that for me, for example, and, and the pandemic was very sharp, one that I knew before and one that I kind of learned from scratch. It starts with work from home, right? A very hot topic, you might argue, these days. I think I've learned it from a very, very senior executive from Intel. I think it was 10 years ago when he said, you know, work from home lacks energy. It lacks kind of uh, team vibes. And when we started DataLoop, my kind of policy was saying, listen, work from home, we can go for that, but it's, it has a very fundamental thing missing in it, which we cannot give up on. And when we started COVID, actually what kind of, I would say, the advantages and disadvantages. And if we take work from home, for example, it's an amazing tool for allowing the employees to have flexibility on their time, to spend more time with the families, and to better do the work-life balance, which is naturally in startup is, uh, I would say in tech world in general, is very hard. But on the other hand, when people don't meet, you know, it's that the meetings near the coffee place or that's uh, small talks on lunch or getting to know each other, we're creating a human fabric and that human fabric is not being built in work from home when you're working, when everybody's working from home. And data loop today, if you take a look, you'll actually see that, like I would say, because we're in growth mode, I would say half of the employees never had the chance to really work together in the same office. That comes with a price toll. For example, new employees, they're suffering the most, right? Because Think about it. They're juniors. They need that guidance. They need that connection, whether it's technical or organizational or even mentoring, right? What is good and wrong? And on the other side, if you go to the seniors or the more, um, I would say, uh, staff level folks, they need that on the aspects of the organization, of getting to know the key stakeholders in the different places. I would say the remote work uh, makes that very, very challenging. If you go take a look on the, I would say, on the hiring process of employees, then it's kind of weird things where you never met someone in real life. I had a few chances where, you know, the first real life meeting was in real time was like after quite a while they've met. We've met in, in, on Zooms, etc. And there is kind of... A, I would say there is a kind of surprise moment, right? Because you say, you know, this, oh, this is how you're in the real life versus how it was on Zoom. I would say it's not good or bad. It's just uh, the way things are. And we have to adjust all these things to the COVID. Now, add to the fact that suddenly all the things that you are used to have, like uh, sprint meetings, etc., everything that had to work remotely. Uh, so we had to kind of realign a schedule for the company, for the entire company that will allow you remote versus physical presence. That means that we have, for example, uh, routines, online meetings, and these are kind of the anchors. And it doesn't matter whether you're in the office or it doesn't matter whether you're at home. This is the point where everybody kind of connect. 
and, and realign. And we found it very, very useful. And at, by the way, on all levels, it's daily things, right? It's not like this is our, this is the company heart, digital heartbeat or digital physical location agnostic heartbeat. And it kind of goes with levels. So imagine that my staff and I are meeting at uh, 9 a.m. and then the staff minus one will meet at uh, 10. And, and at the end of the day, they might have team meetings uh, or something like that. And that's kind of really helpful for us to uh, to create, I would say, the resilience for the remote work and the operational side. That's kind of it, I, I would say. And, and I still, I'm still learning it. I think that the biggest gap is that we found that it's very hard to socialize, I would say, on the remote aspect. So whoever is wondering, we've done some cahoots. If you don't know what is that, so look it up for. So we yeah. really had time on enjoying it digitally. I think there is a lot of room for innovation here, right? How do you make remote teams share fun time together rather than just work? I appreciate you sharing that, Iran. That's amazing how we are overcoming the challenges, the people challenges, not just the technological challenges. So I really appreciate that. Iran, I know you're currently leveraging some new or emerging technologies in your tech stack, like RPA, machine learning, NLP. Could you share anything that uh, with our audience that may not be maybe proprietary? Yes. Yeah, so I've always been told by my folks that I'm too excited and I'm exposing too much. But guys, this is how it is. <laughs> I would say that when it comes to technology experimentation and how things are look like, first, it's, I always enjoy thinking about things, you know, like uh, from 15,000 feet. If you talked about AI and, and data, then I will tell you that a single word will be automation. Everything is going to be automated. Now we have the ability to automate our physical actions or our hands actions. Now with the AI era, we have the ability to automate our thinking. And if you think about it, everything is a result of our hands and brains. And the ability to automate our brain goes through mimicking or copying human brains. And that goes through data and that technical process of data and labeling. That's how that mimic happens. And suddenly you go like from a very, I would say, maybe decades trends, uh, decades to, to come trends to uh, something that's happening right here and now. And if you go to, I would say, the technical aspects, I would set it into kind of three categories. The first one is, I would say, the wild things, the things that we kind of ask ourselves, let's go run fast forward 10, 20 years and, and see how things, what will happen there. I'll give you a few examples. For example, we did uh, experiments with brain interfaces, what it means to kind of connect. It might sound crazy. It's actually, it is a bit crazy, maybe. <laughs> But what it means that if I can kind of let uh, people have, you have, uh, I would say, an industry, emerging industry now, of the ability to scan our uh, uh, signals coming from the brain. What if we can connect these uh, means and, and let uh, people kind of connect the data to directly to their brains? I would say uh, the results there were, on one hand, it was remarkable to see it actually works. On the other hand, it didn't work good enough for it to become uh, really, uh, I would say, effective in real business and life cases today. Another example would be uh, we worked with, I would say, uh, kids with disabilities because on uh, working on data and, and, and try to analyze the behave, these behaviors and how. And, and we found out, for example, that the things that makes data labeling quite, I would say, uh, uncomfortable to most people when it comes to people on the uh, spectrum they actually find the qualities that makes us reject these jobs, you know, the monotonics, the consistency, the details. It's actually a wonderful world for them. And of course, it brings the different challenges. But it's just to give you the aspects of taking the areas we're dealing with and exploring, not limiting ourselves with the exploration of where will it go. 
The second part of thinking about the industry as a whole, how the impact on the industry as a whole will happen. And you gave an example, talked about RPA, and that's actually an interesting case because I really like that case. I think that RPA is going to go to, go to IPA. It's, it's a transformation of this entire industry uh, from uh, the robotic process into intel- intelligent process. And if you take a look today about RPA, it's a lot of, I would say, analyzing of screens and forms. And, and maybe for the audience, think about how you want to automate your actions on computer. I think that the entire RPA industry at some point will go to record a video and just replay it. Just like you would do with human, right? This is how you do it. Now go do it yourself a gazillion times. And the gaps for making that, you know, that single video, and I'm sure that if you go talk with RPA companies, they will show you that on their vision. But the path is, uh, is pretty complex, but at some point that's where it will go. And I would say all industries will go through that type of transformation. And now if you go industry by industry, it's not a matter of if this industry will be transformed. Any job, essentially, if you might imagine, it's more of a question of how and when and, and kind of what is the maturity of the AI, different AI parts that we need to have in the ecosystem for these, I would say, jobs to kind of change the way they're doing. The last part is, is the macro, right? If we'll take an example of a macro trend, we have the autonomous machines or the self-retail checkouts systems, and we know they're coming, and actually COVID accelerated that. And if you think about uh, companies like Amazon Go and Standard Recognitions and, and many others that are working on uh, remote shopping or self-checkout shopping experience, if you really think about it, what they're doing is that they're taking the cashier out of the store putting it in some remote location with people doing data labeling, kind of saying, what is the product? It's like the cashier is in a back room of the storage, but that back room might be in a different country. It's kind of transferring your product from there. Only it's not doing that on the cashier. It's doing it while you're picking it up from the shelf. And it's all become a question of automation. How much can you automate that in order to, like how many jobs you're saving or you might argue uh, losing while doing that in the process? And these trends are things that you can actually kind of calculate, right? How much time it will take, how much the compute process will cost for that. When the compute processing that's needed plus the labeling that's needed will actually go into intersection point where this business model becomes valid. By the way, it's today it's very hard because all the resources around, but it will be pretty valid business model in a year or two. And once you go look at the macro trends, you can actually predict even a year, two, three years ahead. And this is, by the way, how we actually built data by successfully guessing how the future will look like. Iran, I appreciate the share on that. I think what's exciting for me, and I, I can hear it in your voice, is innovating and advancing the technology to improve business or people's lives. So thank you again. And Iran, last question, if you could briefly share something from your career experience that would be helpful for those looking to grow their career in either technology or entrepreneurship. Touching here, uh, a favorite part of mine, I, I always mentor people on, on career path. And even when I was at Intel, I think, and, and we could continue to data loop. I think that this is the most important thing managers can do for their employees. We'll be really happy kind of to share with you and, and your audience my tips, say my golden tips. Let's start with the general career points that I think that are critical. I think that every employee has a balance point of like a value generation. Think about me. My wife taught me that years ago. You're a company of one man and, and you're, you have a product, which is what you're doing. So every one of us that's generating something for our company, we actually have two values, two verticals that we're making progress. The one is the market value. 
that we are bringing to ourselves. And the other one is the company value we generate. And if we're planning our career, I'll give examples. I know it sounds a bit, I would say, vague now. But let's imagine if I'm now learning an amazing technology, let's say the programming language, if I'm learning a new programming language that will be 10 times faster, I'm actually doing two things. I am now excelling at, I'm improving myself. I'm now bringing myself the new skills probably within two, three, four, five years will be very needed in the market. But on the same time, I'm actually advancing my workplace, my, the company I'm working for, because I'm giving that, them that competitive edge. And that's amazing win-win. But on the other hand, let's say I'm, I'm doing some kind of manufacturing, you might have a very tough problem in getting some kind of a small plastic part that we need to generate. And in the coming two years, I will actually become the expert of that plastic manufacturing parts, which bring a tremendous value to my organization because I've kind of solved a critical path on the path of production. But on the other hand, I would say that two years for learning how to manufacture this specific parts, I'm not sure I added a lot to my career path. And I think that the art is in the balance. Where do you find the places where you favor both sides' improvement? That means me and my company. And where do I actually prefer the company because it's critical enough and important enough for me kind of to sacrifice my own advancement to, towards the company advancement? On the other hand, where I favor myself over the company. So I would say most of the folks I've seen over their careers didn't know how to do that kind of balancing. I would say even not being aware of that balancing exists. And I think this is something you should pay attention to it. The next one is, I would say, always learn outside of what you're doing right now. Because what you're doing right now, by definition, will drag you to, I would say, incremental improvements. And if you really want to do, I would say, leaps, leaps are not coming from improving what you're doing today and shipping it tomorrow or next week. Leaps are coming from you doing something totally different. And then at some point, you know, light bulbs are turning on saying, wait a minute. That's like what I did with, if you think about at the time, so when, when we just went out with Data Loop, I was working on, on one side, I was working on AI, but I'm a processor and processing experts and, and operating systems. You know, why would I go into AI? And at some point I managed to bring like millions of dollars value into processors using machine learning. And in these intersections, you're doing something that nobody else has done before. And what happens out of that? First, the organization got an amazing value, right? But on the other hand, I kind of got the machine learning AI automation experience that always starting 2009 and where it was not that popular. Again, back to that point. The last one, if you go to the entrepreneurship, I think we are over the days where you can kind of label yourself as an employee or as a kind of entrepreneur. I think that people are required to reinvent themselves, even as an employees. But if we go to kind of hardcore entrepreneurship, uh, what I found, and I'm mentoring, I would say at any given point, I'm mentoring, I would say between three to five startups, uh, pro bono, right? I'm, I'm, and, and like I'm telling my folks, when you're mentoring someone, you're actually receiving not less than you're giving. And I would say the most confusing thing to, uh, to young entrepreneurs is that people tend to think about starting a company or a startup or a product as, I have an idea, I will go and raise some money, then I will hire my team, they will build a product, and I will sell it to customers. And I've created a kind of company loop, right? Think about it like the company life cycle, uh, investments, team, product, sales, and it repeats itself. But the beginning is actually, uh, is actually backwards. You go hire the team. You build the product. 
you sell to customers, right? In the early days, you might argue you won't call them customers. And then you go and raise the funds. And I would say 95% of the cases. And that's kind of really weird because how can I hire a team if I don't have the funds? How can I build a product if I don't have the team? And who do I sell it for? And investors kind of coming last. It's like, yes, they're coming last because it's, it's risk-free. That's how it works. And you know, the natural response from folks, it's, it doesn't make sense. And I said, welcome to entrepreneurship 101. It doesn't make sense. By definition, what you're about to do doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense in the process. It doesn't make sense in the financial. It doesn't make sense in your success rates by starting a startup. It doesn't make sense. The only reason it makes sense is if you believe it makes sense and it's actually you make it, you will enforce that making sense. And you can see plenty of examples around us of people are actually doing that. And I would say the the best entrepreneurship advice is go build stuff sell it, sell it from day one. I've sold data loop before I actually had data loop. I just sold it. What I sold, I sold the dream. I sold my time. Back then, investors were kind of pissed off. You know, it's, it's services. No, it's not services. I just don't have the product. So I'm selling the product I'm going to build, right? But I can vision it. And that's what we did. So focus on, I would say, go-to-market sales from day zero, not day one, day zero. Of course, you don't have anything, but whatever you have, try to play with that. Play with the market. Feel your customers or your future audience. And in early stages, raising funds is a very big point, big pain point. Understand that investors are simultaneously have no idea right? They're clueless and they're right because they will give you the cookbook of right and wrong. But on the other hand, it's on you to show that what you're doing is right and whatever you're doing that it's out of the book. And as I said, it doesn't make sense. You will always have stuff out of the investor's book. It's actually things that will figure themselves out as time goes by. And as Paul Graham says, I think Paul Graham uh, said it the best. He said, you know, do it, do things that do not scale. By definition, do things that do not scale. So I would say that would be my best second advice. And the third one is that do not dream that going and make, becoming an entrepreneur is something you're doing yourselves. Two more parties are involved. First, your partners, your co-founders, your co-founding team, your initial team. It's culture. It's, you know, you're going to the woods. You need to eat, to watch each other back. It's going to be painful. It's, uh, I would say synergy and, and trust is the most important thing you can think of. And I would take a partner that I trust and have synergy with any day over experience or titles or knowledge, any day. And the second part is your family, your spouse and everybody around you are part of that. They will actually, they will have to pay some price, right? Whether it's from your time, whether it's finance. Uh, when I left Intel, I kind of dropped with my income 100% and a few years later, still haven't recovered even half of that. As an employee, right? You measure as, a, as an entrepreneur, you measure things differently though. You're going to take a hit. Your family going to take a hit and they need to back you up. I would say, with their hearts and soul. And if you have all these combinations coming in together, I think you should go for it. Iran, I appreciate that. I really do. Really gives a perspective of inside the entrepreneur's brain. So thanks again. And it's been really amazing to learn this. And I can't wait to share this with our global audience. So Iran, it was a pleasure having you on today. And I look forward to speaking with you real soon. Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And if by any chance uh, the audience doesn't resonate with what I'm saying, I would say I tend to say 80% right, right? So 20%, please forgive me. <laughs> Bye for now. Bye.